It is my privilege now to bring to you, to read to you, the text from which Matt will preach this morning, from Psalm 95. You may follow with me if you, if, if you uh, wish in the bulletin. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are also his. The sea is his, for he made it. In his hands form the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today... If you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massah in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For forty years I loathed that generation and said, They are a people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Therefore I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest." The word of the Lord. Um, it is my pleasure and joy to be here. I'm sorry. I am uh, Matthew Moynihan, ordained minister in the PCA. It's been a long journey getting here. Uh, I moved to Charlotte six years ago, actually, six years ago in two weeks exactly. Um, and I did not plan to stay here this long. Uh, I was an intern with RUF after college in 2005, um, and it was in that, in that calling at that time that I felt God's call to the ministry. And I don't know that if nine years ago, um, if someone had said, hey, you're on this journey, and nine years from now, you'll get there, I don't know if, would have, if I would have done it. I don't know if I would have lasted that long. I also don't know if I would have thought it would have been enough time. I might have said, nine years, I need 20 or 30 to get ready for this calling. Thinking about preaching the sermon to you, I'm thinking about my favorite sermons. Like, the sermons have really touched me. And oftentimes, our favorite sermons are not necessarily the best sermons. They're not the most eloquent sermons. Uh, they're not the most biblical sermons, even. even. They're the sermons that are just, just touch us. My favorite sermon was, taught, was uh, preached by Dustin Salter. He was an all-youth chemist minister at TCU, and then for a very brief period of time at Furman. Uh, the first time he preached at a church there, wherever Furman is, I'm not sure, um, they called him to preach on Providence. And so he came before them preaching on Romans 8, 28 to 30, which is... The, the golden chain of salvation, and the, the great, great assurance we have as Christians of God's care. And he spoke about his journey coming to Furman and finding a house, and there's still, still so many things that are uncertain hanging in the air. Uh, and in the midst of all this, he was trusting God because he didn't know what tomorrow would bring. I wasn't there for that sermon. I heard it online. I listened to it after his death, three days later. He was riding a bike with his sons, turned around, looked backwards, fell off his bike, and that was the end of Dusty. And it touched me because Dustin 
preached this beautiful sermon on God's providence, this grand uh, exhortation of our trust in his, his care, even when we don't know what's going to happen, even when we don't know what will occur, when we don't know what will happen to our circumstances. We read before us a text, this beautiful text, before, uh, this beautiful passage, Psalm 95. It is a passage of grand worship and, and ex- exclamation, uh, exaltation of the Lord, and is also a striking warning. Uh, this text points backwards in time. Uh, there's actually several periods in history where this text is kind of rooted. It's a little complicated. I'm going to try to kind of unravel it for you, so please just bear with me just for a moment. First, this text points backwards several hundred years, back to the people of Israel as they, as they crossed over the Red Sea. The people of Israel had seen majestic and, and marvelous things that their God had done. They had been enslaved. Uh, they were brutalized. They lived in squalor. Their lives were hard. And God sent Moses to them, and he did these ten great miraculous plagues. Punishment on Israel, a redemption, punishment on Egypt, and redemption, redemption for Israel. And after all that, he brought them to the Red Sea, and standing before a massive body of water, Moses raised up his his staff, and the power of the Lord split the waters in two. And the people of Israel passed through. And they came into the desert, and there was no food, because the desert is a desert. And they said, God, what are you going to do? How will you care for us? Why did you bring us here? And God miraculously rained bread from heaven, manna from heaven. And then again, the people of Israel, weary from their travel, came to a lonely, solitary spot in the desert, marked by nothing but a great rock. And the people of Israel said, there's no water. Where's the water? Lord, why have you ever brought us out here to die? They complained against the Lord, who had done all these marvelous things. And they said, God, what are you doing with, this, with these circumstances? What is your plan? This is a bad plan. And Moses was weary. He was tired of the people that the Lord had given him. And the Lord instructed him to assemble the people before him in front of this rock, this giant rock. And he and the elders proceeded up to the rock, and he told Moses to stand in front of the people of Israel and proclaim, see what the Lord will do. And what, what the Lord said to Moses, and this is important, he said, I will stand before you on the rock. Then he commanded Moses to strike the rock. And having stricken the rock, water gushed forth from the depths of the earth. We don't know where. Maybe there's a spring underneath. Maybe the water, the atoms turn into water atoms. We don't know, but somehow, water molecules, I'm sorry, water is not an atom. Somehow, water gushed forth from this rock. And the people drank. And the striking of the rock was twofold, a deliverance for evil, for, for Israel. You have water now. You can, you can survive. And it was a strike of judgment on God. God bore the judgment of their complaints. It is a remarkable passage. A little, bit pa- a little later, that was ex- Exodus 17. A little later in Exodus 20, the people of Israel come to Mount Sinai, another large mountain in the desert. And standing before this mountain, the people, people of Israel watched as dark clouds and thunder formed around this peak. Moses climbed up into this darkness, and he disappeared for 40 days. And the people of Israel, Israel said, where did he go? Where's Moses? He hasn't been around for over a month. 
and the Lord flashed forth thunder from the dark cloud, and the sight was terrible, and it was awesome, and it was majestic. So, the psalmist points backwards to these events in, in the Sinai. He says, look back to Israel. The psalmist is also speaking to the people of his own time. Uh, we have reason to believe, although it's not labeled, this psalm is, this psalm is a psalm of David. But David wrote this psalm. And he wrote it in the midst of hardship as a call to worship to himself and to his people to come worship the God in the midst of difficult circumstances. And then again, this psalm is is appropriated again in Scripture in Hebrews 3 and 4, where the author of Hebrews, speaking to a, a, a group of Christians who experienced persecution, a group of Christians who wondered, is it really worth it? Who really wondered, these circumstances don't seem to demonstrate that God has control. And to these people, the, the author of Hebrews said, quoting this passage, today, today do not harden your voice. Today read this text. Today, go back to the Psalms. And finally, this text applies to us. Throughout the ages, this psalm has, has triumphed, has marched, has paraded through the ages, proclaiming majesty, glory, wonder, and awe to the Lord, even now to this place right now, to us, in all of our myriad of circumstances and situations. To you all, as you step out into a new building, a new chapter of, of Christ Central, and to me and Allie as we step out into the unknown of Philadelphia and the wilderness that is. What we see from this text is that we are called to worship our God. And I think this is really clear. Uh, this is so clear that Charles actually used the same text uh, earlier this morning, is our call to worship. It is so much a call to worship, it is a call to worship. We are called to worship the Lord. Let me make a couple notes about the text. I'm sorry, this is a very, very complex text. So if I, if I take a little caveat here or there and say, let me explain this, it's because it is just a majestic and difficult and wonderful um, piece of scripture. We see the beginning where he says, O come, and then again in verse 2, let us come, and in verse 6, O come. But in each of these situations, he's actually using a different word. And the first term he uses is not come at all, but rather go. It is as though the psalmist finds himself not in the temple calling the audience to him, but rather finds himself in the wilderness out with a, a, a weary a weary, world-weary group of people saying, go, go to the temple, go worship the Lord. And then in verse 6, we, we, we have a, a very a treat of come, come to me, come. We are called to worship the Lord. First, we need to see that we should, we should, we should worship the Lord because he is our creator. So we see this in verses 1 through 5. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God, and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth, and the heights of the mountain are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. 
the first thing we see from this text is that we are called to worship God because he is the creator. All of creation around us, around us testifies to this. Everything we see, everywhere we go, all of creation cries out, glory, worship. Here's a question for us. Are we enjoying and worshiping the creation and nature more than the creator? As you go out, as you go to the beach and sit on the, sit on the shore and look out on the, the waves as they roll in onto the beach and the clouds that pass over and just wonder, this is so beautiful, is your thought, glory, glory to the Lord. As you climb the mountain peaks, look out over those vast vistas, the landscape carpeted below you, the beautiful sky and the picturesque trees and mountains, do you think, Praise to the Lord God Almighty. Do you read science magazines and science books? If you, if you read science te- textbooks and enjoy just learning the splendor of creation down to the, the micros level, uh, or, or the vastness of creation way out beyond our galaxy, as you read these things, do you look back to the creator, the author who wrote those? The author of the psalm says, why should we worship the Lord? Because he is the creator. He made everything. The second implication of this is that not only does the creation call for us to worship, but the creation demonstrates that God is worshipped everywhere. There is not any place you can go, any place you can't go, in which God is not worshipped. The term here for the depths of the earth is just the, the deepest, darkest places, places that, that we will never go in our, life, our lifetimes, down to the deepest crag or up to the highest summit. In all these places, all the creation cries out. If we read, read verse 1, verse 1 is full of joy. Verses 1 and 2 are full of joy, joyful singing. But really, as you read the text in Hebrew, it tells a little bit of a different story. You've often heard it said, God calls us not to make a a good noise, but a joyful noise. But the term that's actually used here is not joyful noise, but loud noise. The call of the gospel is not sing joyfully to the Lord. It is rather sing loudly. Make yourself known. Be obnoxious. I started thinking about this, noises. What what noises do I encounter? What noises do we see in our culture? How do we interpret those? And one thing that kept coming back to me was crickets. The cricket, the universal sound of awkward silence. It's like, I I think about this and I think about... uh, uh, the Little Mermaid, and the scene where they're in the boat, and all the little fishes and the frogs and the crab, they're all singing together. And he's going, dun, 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 you got to kiss the girl. Dun, dun. I, I tried to remember, remember it, and I've forgotten it. But, but you get it, right? We, we hear the, the cricket, and we think, we think the cricket is, we interpret the cricket, cricket's thoughts, and we think the cricket is, think, is say, thinking, come on, you got to speak up. We, we, we hear the cricket and we hear, awkward, awkward. We hear the cricket calling to us saying, 
you're being awkward. You, you shouldn't do that. That's not true. What this text tell, tells us is the cricket is thinking, shut up and listen. Because what they're actually saying is not awkward. They're saying glory. Glory to God in the highest. Think about the noises you encounter. Think about the places you go. Do you look at creation and say, this is the majesty of the Lord God Almighty? This is what he calls you to. This is why he made it. He made the mountains, the sea, the stars, the galaxies, the atoms, everything for his glory. And likewise, he made you, that you might glorify him. We are called to, to worship God, our creator. Uh, we're also called to worship God, our shepherd. Look with me in verses 6 and 7. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, and the sheep of his hand. Think about the, the term he uses here, the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. It might make more sense to reverse those, the sheep of his pasture and the people of his hand. But the psalmist places it this way because he wants to reiterate the fact that we are his sheep. This is not the only place. Over and over again in Scripture, the Bible calls us sheep. All of we, like sheep, have gone astray. Why does, the, why does the Bible call us sheep? Think about what sheep are. Sheep are stupid, smelly animals. Sheep cannot do it for themselves. Sheep cannot get by. Sheep can just not make a living. They have to be cared for, provided for, and, tend, uh, and attended to. And what the Bible says is that you are a sheep. The Bible says that you are a stupid, smelly beast. But the glory of the gospel is this, that you are a stupid, smelly beast in the hand of Almighty God. God, God bears us in his hand. Think about, think about the term hand here. It, it appears several times in the scripture. Uh, first of all, uh, all of earth is in his hand. Secondly, the dry land was formed by his hand. And now we find ourselves, that we, his sheep, are in his hand. The one who has created and made everything in this world around us is the one who holds us, who handles us. Uh, the one who made the atomic table, or rather the item, the elements of the, the atomic table, the one who created that order, that majesty, that wonder, that system, is the one who cares for you. And what we find is that as we, as we stay in his hand, the sheep of, sheep of his hand, we are marked by his fingerprints. He molds us. He shapes us as, as he holds us. We're called to worship God because he's our shepherd. Uh, last week, Michael Woodham uh, preached a marvelous sermon about God as our shepherd. He shepherds us. He pastors us. We are called to worship him because he loves us, because he cares for us. Not for our own value, but for his own glory. There's a little bit of a transition in verse 7. If you read carefully, you'll see it. There's a change in person or a change in speaker. Uh, I'll start from verse 6. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. 
Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker, for He is our God, and we are the people, people of His pasture and the sheep of His hand. Today, if you hear His voice, now the change, do not harden your hearts, as at Meribah, as on the day of Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test. And it goes on from there in the first person. Do you see that shift? In the first part of the psalm, there is someone like us who is speaking to us, pointing us to God. And in verse, verse 8, suddenly it is no longer someone else, rather it is God who is speaking directly to us. It is as though uh, uh, the psalmist is on you know, open mic night and is doing an introduction, and, and God just bounds on the stage and says, do not harden your hearts. But instead of a comedian, we find in this verse almost a villain. And indeed, if you are not Christ's friend, he is a villain indeed. Because if you're not Christ's friend, you are Christ's enemies. We should not read this text with the same voice. This voice must be very different. It is not, do not harden your hearts. Instead, it is, do not harden your heart. Are you scared? We should be. We should be frightened. We should be terrified by this voice. Do not harden your hearts. This voice is the voice of one who is terrifying. Everyone who encounters Christ is marked by him. We, his sheep, the people of his hand, are marked by his fingerprints. But all others are marked by footprints. If you're not carried by Christ, you are trodden underneath. If you're not loved by Christ, you are his enemy. If you are not soft-hearted to Christ, then your heart is hard indeed. And this, this passage is terrifying for all of us. It is not any people who were in the wilderness who God despised, who God loathed. It was his own people. The psalmist urges us, do not harden your hearts. The one who speaks here, if he is not your friend, if he is not your God, if he is not your Savior, then he is your undoing. Read this text carefully. Don't read about it lightly. Read the depth and the darkness in this. Let yourself tremble before these words. Let yourself feel the weight of this. They shall not enter my rest. That doesn't mean a seaside vacation. That means hell. Feel the weight of this verse. Feel its heaviness. God is glorified and just and right to loathe sinners because they are living in his world without giving him glory. They are stealing his glory from him. They are stealing his, cre his creation from him. They are, they are robbing him of his glory. They are robbing him of his name. Feel the weight of this. We are called to worship the God, worship God, the God who is terrifying. If you are not the people of his hand, you are the enemy under his foot. 
Feel this. Feel this. You know what? I'm just being too heavy here. I, I, I get it. I understand. I've been, watching, I've been watching some other pastors, and I see what they're doing. And the thing that really gets people is prophecy, right? Just, just getting a date, reading the Bible and finding the day. And you know what? I went to seminary. I cracked the Bible codes. I did it. And I found, I found the day. I found the day on which God calls you to repentance. I found the day, the exact day on which your prayers will especially be heard. I found the moment when Christ will especially accept you. All right, you ready? Pull your pocketbooks, get out your calendar, write this down. It's important. This will happen in your lifetime, and I guarantee that every one of you will live to see it. But don't do anything crazy, because I can't guarantee you will live through it. The day that Christ is set aside, especially for repentance, especially for obedience, especially when he will hear you, especially when he will call you his child, that day is today. God calls you to worship him and obey him today. What a marvelous and merciful thing. The only day that God calls you to obedience is today. Now, now, now let, me, let me correct any objection you might have. You might think, but if he only calls me to obey today, then he calls me to obey every day. Well, that's not merciful at all. That's just work. But this is an error. In fact, this is a lie from the pit of hell. It comes, it comes straight out of the Screwtape letters, where Screwtape was writing to Wormwood, and he wrote, maybe it was the other way around, and he wrote, Christians are called to bear their cross. And the trick is not is to convince them that instead of bearing their cross, they must bear every cross. And that is, that is a fallacy of believing that God calls you to obedience every day. He calls you to obedience today. He does not call you to obedience yesterday. And he does not call you to obedience tomorrow. Now you might think, well, that's just semantics, because yesterday used to be today. It's just not anymore. But let me explain. Follow me here. What would happen if God called you to obey yesterday? How would you get there? How would you undo it? What would you do with those things you did, those things you left undid, those terrible things you said, the things you should have said? How will you change those things? Now, these questions are not unfamiliar to all of you because all of us place these questions to ourselves every day as we walk away from a meeting and think, oh, man, I should have said that. Or when someone says something, and 30 seconds later, we have the perfect comeback. Oh, I just missed it. What if God called you to obedience yesterday? You would be destitute. You would be hopeless. What if God called you to obedience tomorrow? What if you don't make it there? What if you sleep in? This is God's mercy. He does not call us to... to uh, to obedience yesterday or, to, or tomorrow, but only today. This is important for us because all of us wear the, carry these weights. All of us look back to yesterday bearing the griefs that came before us, uh, missing, uh, uh, lamenting, and grieving all the things that we, various things that we did or didn't do. And all of us carry with us 
are all the worries and griefs of tomorrow. Where will I do? What will I do? Where will I go? What will I say? All of us, all of us are bearing the griefs of yesterday. All of us are carrying uh, the worries of tomorrow. And yet Christ only calls you for today. What does this mean for us? Oh, one, more, one more thing, I'm sorry. The author of Hebrews talks about the rest that we see at the end of this, end of this uh, psalm. They shall never enter my rest. And what he says is, today precedes the rest. He says, we know the rest is not here because today is. What he says is, when the rest comes, that is, when paradise comes, when the promised land comes, it will no longer be today. We might say, the promised land is tomorrow. That's not true. The promised land is not today. Or rather, the promised land is when today is not. What does this mean for us? This means that every morning when we, we, we wake up, we wake up to a day that was specially appointed by Christ just for us, for obedience. How do you know that? Because you're alive. Every morning when you wake up, you are called especially to, to repent, especially to obey, especially to praise, especially to glory. And every night when you go to sleep, it is not for the dawning of a new day, but rather it is a prelude to glory because we know that paradise comes when today is not. The end of every day is the possible coming of glory. We close our eyes not on the dawning of a new day, but on the potential dawning of glory. We wake up in the morning, and your only duty today is to glorify God. Your only duty is to repent, to obey, to love. So many of us get caught up. We think that our lives in this world are for a myriad of purposes. We think that as a parent, we are responsible for producing well-mannered children. Uh, as employees, we're responsible for doing a good job. Uh, as worship leaders, we're responsible for producing a conducive worship environment. No, in each of these situations, you are called only to glorify God. You are called only to praise him. Praising him by doing those things, yes, but the object is not success, the object is glory. And having been done in pursuit of glory, each of those things is successful. Think about this. Instead of hoping and dreading and fearing what your children will be, love them as a means to glorify God. Discipline them as a means to show God's mercy and love and kindness. And whatever way they turn out, God will hope to be glorified. God will be responsible for the outcome. God will, will care for them. You can't change your children. It's just not going to work. We've all tried. Well, I don't, have, I don't have children. I haven't tried yet. But I will. I guarantee it. We're called only to glorify God. What if you did this at work? What if your object at work was not the 
the joy or pleasure of your boss, but instead God's glory? What if you worked your hardest as an expression of, uh, of the, uh, the person that God has created you to be? As an expression of, of the glory there is in worker bees? As an expression of the glory there is in a, a job well done? The weight of pleasing your boss, the weight of all the expectations upon you melts away because your success and your failure relies or depends only on God being glorified. And the beauty of this is God's glory is everywhere. So every effort to glorify God is always successful. It's been a while on this, on this uh, verse, verse 8. Do not harden your hearts. How do you not harden your hearts? That's a hard question, isn't it? How do you not harden your hearts? I think, uh, I think this, the, this text has two answers for us. The first is the reason why the first, ha- the first half of this psalm is connected to the second half. Why is this wonderful exhortation to praise followed by this severe, frightening warning? Why are these things put together? Why would anyone do this? It seems, it seems crazy. It seems psychophrenic. What the psalmist says is, we are called to not harden our hearts by glorifying God. How do you not harden your hearts? You do what the psalm says. Speak loudly. Sing loudly in praise to the Lord. What softens your heart? Exalting someone else. That is, your creator your maker, your provider, your father, your shepherd. How do you not harden your heart? You obey him and glorify him. How do you not harden your heart? You speak loudly to it, saying, praise to the Lord God Almighty. And your hearts will slowly, slowly melt. The first way we don't harden our hearts is we obey God. We let him be the Lord. We let him be the king. We let him be the master. We let his plan for creation be our plan for living. How do we not harden our hearts? We glorify God. Pardon me. I think there's a second answer here as well. That comes from the the Hebrew term glory. The Hebrew term for glory is also means weight or weighty, something that's dense, that's hard. C.S. Lewis uh, grabs onto this idea in his book, The Great Divorce. It's about a story about, uh, and it's, this is not theologically, theologically correct, this doesn't happen. It's a story about people in hell who take a bus ride to heaven. Like this, there's a great gulf. Jesus talked to, talked to us about this. So it's, this is fantasy. But the people of hell take this journey to heaven, and what heaven is, is dense. It is so dense, as they walk in the grass, the grass grass blades are like knives. And as it rains, the rain drops like bullets. It's so thick. It's so dense. It's so hard. Why is your heart hard? Because your heart's all stuffed up with glory. You're just stuffing it away for yourself. You're packing all your glory in there. 
and your glory's clogging up your arteries, and it's catching up all those valves, and it's filling up all the little tiny blood vessels. Why is your heart hard? It's just full stuff packed full of glory that you retain for yourself. You just stuff it in there. And I say you, but I mean me, because I've done this too. And you just stuff all that glory down, because it's yours. Because I'm going to, I deserve it. And this is mine. And I should be treated this way. What does God call you to do? He calls you to give your glory to God. You're packing it into your heart, and you've got to let it go. That stuff will kill you. It will put you to death because your heart can't handle it. He is the rock of our salvation because he is dense. He is full of glory. He can take it. He can absorb all the glory you can give. But we, we cannot. Is your heart heavy? Think about this. How have you been glorifying yourself? How have you been retaining that for yourself? How have you been feeling unjust, unjustified? How, you, how have you been feeling wronged? Is it in traffic? As you're driving along and someone cuts you off, is your glory being thundered upon? As your children speak back to you, are they offending your glory? At work, when things don't go well, is your glory being snipped away? Are you stuffing it down there? In all these situations, our call is to go and give glory to God. Do not harden your hearts. Don't stuff it packed full of glory. Let it go. Glorify God. And we find the more we do that, the looser our hearts are, and the more joyful our hearts are, and the more freely we can do that, the more freely we can glorify God. How do we start this? How do we start this process that seems so counterintuitive? You start by speaking loudly, like it says in the beginning. Proclaim loudly and praise to the Lord, even if your heart doesn't feel it. If your heart says, I don't want to praise God because he's not worth it. I don't want to praise God because of these situations. I don't want to praise God because he has wronged me. When that happens, the answer is simple. Just do it. Just praise him. Just say, God, I don't believe you're worth praising, but I will praise you anyways. And I will trust that in praising you, you will change my mind about who you are. Because you are a praising creature. You are designed to glorify not yourself, not any other thing, but God himself, the king of all kings, the God of all gods. I'm a chaplain candidate in the National Guard, and I have a dear friend who is in my unit, who is older than I am, um, and we have developed a great friendship, and I'm very sad to leave him. Two months ago, we were talking. His mother-in-law was diagnosed with a brain tumor. It was a very advanced brain tumor, a brain tumor that was uh, pronounced to kill her in three months. And his wife had grown up in a movement uh, in which they'd been taught that if you believe it, it will happen. If you claim it for yourself, God will do it. If you just believe hard enough, it's going to happen. You just got to trust God for your healing, and your healing will come. And we talked about that and talked about why that's not biblical. 
about how the Bible doesn't tell us that we are to trust God with our anticipations for the future. We are to trust God that our plans will happen. And we talked about how instead his, his, his wife's call is actually to trust God with his mother's death. I didn't know his mother was going to die, but I did know that she was dying. And his wife's responsibility was not to trust that something majestic would happen in her salvation, in her saving, but rather that something majestic would happen in God's work either way. And she began to do that. She began to trust that her that she began to trust her God with her mother's life. And her mother died. And her God was glorified. Because she trusted her God with her God's plan. This, this psalm calls us in all of our circumstances, in all of our settings, in any place of life you, life you are, to trust God enough to say, God, I praise you. I glorify you. You are my God. I don't feel like it, but you are my God. It has been a long road getting here. And I'm suddenly speaking about myself. I'm sorry. It's been a long road getting here. Um, and I have certainly grown in knowledge and ability, but sometimes I just see how my heart gets hard like this. Um, I see my life and things that I would have thought would have happened or things that I thought God would have done right now, which he is not. And I find it so hard to trust God. God, why are you doing this to me? Why did this happen? You love me, right? That's what you say. Why would you do something like this to someone you love? And all those, all those doubts, they just get down your heart, don't they? And they make your heart hard. This is hard, the thing that God is calling us to do. It is a, it is a heavy task. But this is our hope. One, you are called to worship God because he is your creator. He made everything and he made you to worship him. When you worship him, you're doing what you're made to do. Two, we are called to worship God our shepherd. He is your shepherd, and even when it seems like things are going badly, he is in control. I remember listening to uh, Michael preach about Psalm 23, and the first time it occurred to me, I'd always thought about, in Psalm 23, uh, there were green pastures, and there was the valley of death, and these were two different places. And for the first time it occurred to me, maybe it's occurred to you before, maybe they're the same place. Maybe I'm in a green pasture in the valley of death. Maybe as I look around, I see death all around me, and yet green grass is underfoot. The Lord is your shepherd. Worship the Lord God, your shepherd. We are called to worship God the terrifying. His judgment is real and everlasting. Do not be deceived. Do not mistake your shepherd who loves you for someone who is weak. As the beavers said, said of Aslan in the Chronicles of Narnia, is Aslan safe? He is not safe, but he is good. Worship the Lord God, the terrifying. We are called to worship our God today. Are you 
Are you burdened by the weights of yesterday? Are you carrying the worries of tomorrow? Don't. You're called only to worship your God today. You're called only to trust him today. You're called only to live in today. Not live for today, but live for God today. There's only one day you have to worship God, and that's this one. And so we worship God, we soften our hearts. Is your heart hard? Do you not believe? Do your circumstances seem to indicate that God is not in control, that God does not love you? If this is the case for you, then God calls you today, worship him. Just praise him, glorify him. Let it come out.